Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rippold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another in our Sundance Film Festival Dispatches. Podcasts, day by day, saying what's at the festival, what's happening at the festival, what we're seeing at the festival, who lives, who dies. It's decided here on the podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined for this podcast by... Eric Hines, uh, Curator of Film at Museum of the Moving Image, and I'm also a Film Comment columnist. And... Devika Girish, I'm the assistant editor at Film Comment. And once again, you'll want to subscribe now so you can get our podcast hot and fresh like croissants in your mailbox. Now, we are a little into the festival, but not so much has been shown. You guys are already chuckling at me. <laughs> I'm uh, just imagining croissants in my mailbox. I've never had that. <laughs> I know. I guess there would be a lot of crumbs. Maybe Marketing a, idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea. But each one will have the FC branded upon it. Um, so we'll be going through the movies and what's you know what's important. Um, we we did a little preview already. Um, but Eric, you weren't a part of that preview. So if you have any big picture observations, I'm curious you'd about like this to make. preview. Well, um, well, listen to it. It's online. <laughs> I mean, it's no well, secret. I was, I was en route. I was in oh, flight in when flight. that would have aired. Um, I've arrived uh, a day later than the two of you. Um, so, yeah, so I'm same day um, talking. Uh, you know, this, we, we, you know, we're joking about not doing this, but it's impossible not to say it, which is that the first day or so on, in Sundance is an actual physical adjustment time difference altitude it's a thing um so i think all of us are probably dragging a little bit are a little bit punch drunk without being drunk whatsoever um so that's a little helpful caveat um so in terms of uh scene setting i'll just say on a a personal level um i'm here this year for the first time as a juror i'm in the world doc jury so you will not be hearing anything from me over the course of the week about the world doc you will be films. I'll be, be mum. Yes, you'll be um, loudly bleeped out if you attempt to say anything. <laughs> but I'm also like really successfully, as I should, as I need to, have avoided pretty much everything about every, all of those films. So I'll be very fresh about that, um, or in terms of like viewing those films, and I'm excited about it. Um, this is my 14th festival in 15 years here. Wow! Um, Whoa, old man is, river. Old man river. Here. Wait, what does that? What does that mean? 14. I missed a year. Oh, okay. I missed 2009 when the Obama uh, inauguration was happening. You got kicked out just a bit. (laughs) You came here and they just said, just take the year off, (laughs) please. You know, there were a couple of years I would have preferred to have gotten kicked out. Um, (laughs) uh, That year I would have been happy to attend, Um, but would have been happy to have attended. Um, Yeah, anyway, so um, several years as a publicist and many years writing for the Sundance Institute website um, 
uh, but was moonlighting as a podcaster here those last several years and not sure if I should be podcasting while being a juror, but nobody told me not to. <laughs> so I'm maybe skirting the edges of legality. Um, well, they're not by... going to put you in jail. Guerrilla journalism, film comment podcast. It's true. Well, I think you're providing a, a valuable perspective. Hopefully. You, I think you've seen the festival. Want to hear from the inside of the jury experience? Well, I know you can't reveal and we would never ask you to do well, so. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe over the course of the week, the things sure. that are not about watching films or, uh, or you know, actual jury duties, the, the in-between, the interstitials of my the parties. experience. The parties. That's what you're talking about. The, I can the read car between trips. the lines. <laughs> yeah. The hotel freebies. <laughs> well, they, they put the jury up in the, he- the the headquarters, which is actually strange because oh, yeah. you're you're kind of never out of the festival. You walk outside your right, hotel right. room and the festival's right there. Yeah, yeah, I went yeah. to get toothpaste uh, today after finally getting to my hotel room. And, I, and of course, like several celebs were on my way to getting toothpaste so oh do tell just, yeah Ooh. i mean this is this, these are the interstitials that yeah. are worth <laughs> telling these are the ballyhooed interstitials um oh, i can't say it right now okay wow well i i mean Later on. Uh, is there anything significantly that has changed in your 15 years uh, uh sure well the 14 years the the biggest difference is right now we're I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest difference is that we're right now doing this podcast from the Doubletree Hotel. When I first started coming here, this was known as the Yarrow, and will forever be known as the Yarrow. Um, although, when Nick and I try to make arrangements to meet here, he says meet at the Doubletree, and I, st- I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, I was this talking more Hotel. like festival, you yeah. know, like lineup and other things um, off yeah. consequence. Um, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, I think that a lot of the there were probably bigger changes that happened in the years preceding my coming mm-hmm. that between like 1979 and 2005 when I first came here, there's a lot of changes 2005 till now, probably a little bit less so. Um, but you know, the sort of the, the, um, the density of things sort of things get denser. There was mm-hmm. a period of time when it was wildly commercial um, mm-hmm. and things kind of really did kind of run amok in terms of, and that's been toned down and what they've done to do that. In fact, this year I know that they're making a real big deal about those who are the actual partners, the corporate sponsor partners of the festival. And they're letting us know, like, these are the people that we partner with. Make sure you you know that. That seal thing that they were advertising. Which is a new thing, I think, to kind of Mm -hmm. make, um, which is another sort of step towards, um, reining that in a little bit so it's not so much that Park City becomes you know um, just simply a place to to advertise um, right. for the course of, of these dates so that's kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit over the course of the time I mean in terms of programming you know there are things that have been added there, were nev- there was never a next category mm. years ago when I first started coming was actually n- they had just started wanting to putting emphasis into the world categories, the world dramatic and the world doc um, competitions. And I don't remember if that was it was new to competition or if in terms of prizes or what it was. But I remember there being because I was working publicity on a several titles that were in competition in those. And it was, you know, there was a lot of talk from the festival like this is 
we're really going to put some effort into this. We will. We, this is an important part of what we're doing now. We're not just U.S. Um, because it was like the U.S. Film Festival when it first started. Right. Um, so like they had put a lot of effort by then into going international. Um, is it also? I think we were talking that uh, most films seem to already have distribution, and there's not maybe as much you know anticipation or about buying about like yeah who's going to buy what or chance yeah. to see like undistributed films you know before they get a release and right i mean that is definitely gone come and gone uh, and, mm. and gone back and forth yeah um i mean there was just a couple of years ago it felt like most films didn't have a distribution and mm. weren't bought um yeah i mean there's still a fair amount without distribution and there is still a fair amount that might leave here without it you know um in terms of like there are I think the the Netflix titles we all know of, and there's a there's like eleven Netflix films, so that's a lot. Yeah. But it's not like the other distributors have necessarily shown up with films. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would say like this is like not the sort of thing that we normally get a chance to talk about in the podcast. But one of the bigger changes over the course of those years, New Frontier, New Frontier was a, was a relatively new thing when I first came. And it was very much all about like basically art installations. Hmm. Um, now it has then, Pedro Costa. It does. <laughs> yeah. Vitalina Varela is listed under as a New Frontier. New Frontier well, title. I mean, and, and you know, that was something that emerged over years too, which is that there would be feature films that were hmm. New Frontier films, but it started, you know, as, um, basically non-theatrical works of cinema. Mm. Um, and the first several years, I kind of was crazy about it because it was just like, wow, there's art installations here. Um, and um, yes, it was about screens or the idea of screens existing outside of a theatrical space, but it, um, there's a wide variety of, of approaches. And then over the years, that became, you could see it happening years in advance, it becoming all about VR. Um, mm and AR and like that is sort of and then that became so big and there was so much money involved in that then they split it up so now like that work is in different locations some of the other things and I'm actually very curious about this year is because um, it does feel like it's been a couple years now where they've really split these things off and also like VR has slowed down a little bit in terms of the next big vital thing I'm curious to see like maybe there's room for actual innovation again um, but there was a way in which it was art world and technology and that made sense in the beginning and then it became a lot like, well, is this actually more about technology than about art? And um, I'm curious to see what that, but anyway, that's really changed. Like, and, and the locations for where New Frontier happens has gone all over town. Like in 15 years, there's probably been six locations at least for that. Yeah. Well, art is where you find it, some people say. Um, when was the last time you found it? I'm still looking. <laughs> I'm looking hard every single day. How about some art that you found today? Well, that's a good question and a lovely segue. Um, we have seen a handful of films. Actually, we've seen more than a handful of films, but some of them we can't talk about yet, but we will talk about when the time is right. Um, but uh, opening night, you know, they have what is it, four to six films mm-hmm. that they're showing? So we've seen a couple. We'll, we'll let you know now <laughs> what we think of them. Uh, we, I think perhaps we could talk about Crip Camp. Sure. I think I'm the only one. That, no, you, saw, you saw Crip Camp, too. Yes, I oh, have seen cool. Crip Camp. Um, I was napping. 
while it showed. So I will listen in this part of the discussion. Nap, nap camp. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a good one to start because it's it's a movie that people have already gotten enthusiastic about. Um, right. Um, although at the same time, just apropos of what we were just talking about, that is already a Netflix. Um, yes. So that's it's yeah, it's no mystery where it's going to end up. It won't be difficult to see it, um, <laughs> but still valuable to talk about. And it's a documentary about a, um, a summer camp um, that catered uh, exclusively to um, people with uh, various uh, disabilities. I guess had its heyday. In the 60s and early 70s, I want to well, it's say. It's a camp that was founded in the early 50s, but this is yeah. basically 69, 70, yeah. where we're looking at archival footage from that time. Yes. Um, it, they have a cache of archival footage um, that is just kind of remarkable, even as archival footage goes. Yes. Um, just kind of a couple of people tooling around and, and having really candid and um, funny and random conversations um with uh, people who are at the camp um and also uh you know the um counselors um that's part of the movie i guess that's that's the bulk of maybe like the first 30 40 minutes i want to say yeah um and then the second half like next hour is basically about the civil rights movement um but this particular portion of it, which I was eye-opening for me, mm-hmm. I, I really did not know much about it, um, and also I, you know, not a word I use lightly, inspiring, <laughs> sure, um, because um, you know both because the history is just not known very widely, um, and also, yeah, just it's 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 many of the same sort of protests and sit-ins that have been long romanticized um, in in a more general way, but just here have a almost a life or death urgency and also just an urgency in terms of just, I, I don't know, basic being accorded a basic decency in terms of way of life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And, and the protests are like actually physically taxing oh, hell yeah. <laughs> for the participants to, yeah. to engage in. Um, I don't know, Eric, what, well, what did well, you think I'm, I was saying the one thing that just to, to tie the, 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 the perfectly accurate description is that a lot of the people involved in those protests later in the 70s and 80s actually attended that camp right Um, that's the connection and and that that's that's sort of teased out like over the course of the film like you reminded oh you actually know these people you met these people in the first half and here they are doing this this kind of work Um, which is moving and powerful but also sort of attests to what happened in this very early moment when you just just almost quite simply having a space where people with disabilities could feel like they belonged and that they were not outliers um and yet they were all very very different people with different challenges um and just being able to sort of be full human beings sexual beings you know deviant in some way culturally which is a, a, an exciting moment to be so um in, in in american culture like in terms of drugs and you know just sort of whatever like rough housing behavior like yeah. that being allowed to be something other than just you know having to kind of um counteract what everybody else thinks of you um and counteract like your appearance and how people then sort of have some sense of who you are to be in a space where you just 
I don't know, like you, you belong. Yeah. Um, and how powerful that was that it could have like major political ramifications, individual ramifications in terms of like the rest of their lives and sort of fi- getting a feeling a sense of belonging and connection to those they share that experience with. But then all, but yeah, to sort of feel like, oh no, I'm empowered to do, to, right. to actually like stand up to government and yeah. to as you're saying, like this is a life or death thing. Like, no, I, I will not accept something less than having my rights, uh, you know, being afforded the same access and rights that the rest of my citizens are. Yeah, and and yeah, there's a fascinating way where it just it just opens up the whole, I don't know, countercultural moment in a new way because, I mean, some of the counterculture comes to seem kind of sort of indulgent, <laughs> self-indulgent, sure, which is always something that was leveled against it. But when you you see what can actually happen with the space that that opened up then um this this just seems i don't want to say more substantive but just there's a bit of an okay boomer thing to this because in the sense that this is really exciting to me what 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 is happening at this camp and 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 the courage it takes for the movements after it um a little more than this than this some of the other aspects of that people, you know, romanticize about the counterculture. Well, it's, and it's interesting. But, but at the same time, they're inextricably connected, so I can't dismiss it. But yeah. No, and I think about this in terms of uh, Jim Lebrecht, who's the sort of the mm-hmm. co-director of the of the film, who's actually like this extremely renowned, like, sound mixer studio person of for Hollywood films. And, like, he's, yeah. he's, an, he's this legendary figure who is, is you know, um, directing uh, this his, his sort of... <laughs> Um, uh, legendary figure directing one of the uh, subjects of the film passed us by and was waving to us. Yes, that's why. That's why he was. Oh, do you think he heard us? Quip camp. Yeah, I didn't see. That's actually that's. Yeah, we could have could have brought him in. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. So, in terms of editing the podcast, sorry, (laughs) I was weird pauses there, and that's why. Um, but let's leave that in. Let's just say that yeah. one, of, one of the subjects of, of Crip Camp yeah. just, just walked by. One of, the, one of the counselors, yeah. one of the original counselors. Oh. Anyway, so Jim um, is is like this, incre- like you know, he's, he's an incredible man who's had this incredible career. He's also somebody who, to this day, really owns that countercultural thing. He mm-hmm. wears tie-dyed shirts. Like, he yeah. owns it. And, so, you know, there are some, like, music cues there that are sort of standard music cues for music of that moment um and there's a way in which i kind of like react i was like oh it's a little familiar mm. these are the songs that speak to this moment in you know the sort of american counterculture but <laughs> contextualized with these figures who are in some ways like owning those yeah. um uh, whatever owning the discourse way better than honestly so many other sort of people who were who were agitating for change in very legitimate ways but like we're not embodying them nearly the way that these people were there's a, there's a way in which um that music in some way is like they he has, he has he has every right to use that those cues because he's repossessing them in a way yeah well, i guess i mean i haven't seen it but i guess because that counterculture of the 60s has sort of become reduced to an aesthetic now in many ways mm. and and we just remember it or encounter it in the media through certain just aesthetic symbols and often it becomes just divorced from the history. So sure. it sounds like what you're saying is 
it's kind of refreshing, I guess, to see that aesthetic and then for that to be backed up with like something, yeah, like a legitimate portrayal of resistance. And I think it's a resistance that, and that's the other thing that is very active and it's still going on. Yeah. So those incredibly inspiring to see these things that I didn't know about in terms of um, making incredible strides um, that, but, it, but the, those ripples are still being felt, which is how powerful it was. But we still need those ripples because we're still in a moment. Like there's 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 stuff in there about um, New York City subway system. Yes, and and sort of like th- there being resistance to making any kind of major change, and as we know, like that's still an issue. Like there's still like hardly any subway no. stations that actually have that are accessible to this for the disabled. So the idea of, in some ways, that um, that political agitation of that moment is still active and needs to be still active Mm -hmm. for this particular movement yeah no it's it's crazy i mean you can that history can kind of freeze for a while as if we we, the progress has been done and and we're all okay but it's like yeah no (laughs) it hasn't so yeah there's a whole like layering um to to the the history that's really interesting and this Um, movie is produced by the obamas well, they they, they or came executive in. Executive produced. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, this the, is their, their second role. film after American Factory. Was it Common Ground? Is it what it is? Sounds right. Um, yeah. So um, I think the they came on like American Factory. They came on at the festival or soon after the festival last year. So I don't. In this case, I actually think that Crip Crime wasn't actually completely done, and they came on board. Mm. Like they knew they wanted to be involved in it. Um, I think it's more about like. The, the the life of the film going forward where it's like they work Lending with their, they work with Netflix okay. on a strategy for reaching audiences get your copy of our January February 2020 issue of Film Comment featuring our best of the decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Garish and R Emmett Sweeney the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s along with filmmakers, critics and programmers picks of the decade also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. So that is Crip Camp, um, another film that we saw, uh, just to do a complete 180 uh, in, in, in just about every way, or some ways, I guess, um, Bad Hair. Um, Devika, would you like to summarize this film directed by Justin Simeon, uh, the director yes. of Dear, Dear White People? Yes, uh, and which came out in 2014, and I don't think he has made any other feature film until now. Uh, That's right, although he's done some some other work, I believe, but I'm not sure. Well, Dear White People was also made into a it's television a show, show, and yeah. I believe he was involved in it in some way. I'm so. unclear to what extent. Uh, yeah, Bad Hair. The film is about a young woman named Anna who works at a, a TV show named Culture, uh, it's it's like a music channel. Um, I was also very sleepy when I saw this, so I'm trying to piece together what this actually happened. This is the happened. glory of the podcast this instead is. of the deadline review. We, we can it's admit true. that sleepiness I know. is a factor. We can That's admit fine. our imperfection as critics. Um, and so 
and, and so it's like a TV show with uh, which has like musical numbers, R and B, and hip hop artists, and you know various hosts. And she works as an executive assistant, is sort of dissatisfied with where she is in life. Mm-hmm. And what sort of frames the story is that when she was young, she had an accident with a product she used on her hair, um, and it left a patch of uh, bald baldness, kind of scar. yeah, like a. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, something, and and so she's working at this network, and they undergo some major changes, and there's sort of a new head of programming brought in who wants to change the show, name of the show from culture to cult, and kind of bring about you know make it more hip and relatable, and bring about all these changes, and one of the changes that sort of there's a series of events and discussions and Anna is trying to use this opportunity to get her dream gig, which is to host uh, one of the shows on, on this channel. And she's told that she should change her hair. She wears her hair naturally uh, when we first meet her. And she is persuaded to get a weave, which at, it, it, it's shown as being sort of a recent phenomenon then. And uh, so she's told to get a weave and and kind of get this like kind of unnaturally straight hair. And she goes to this really shady salon where Laverne Cox plays this, I don't know, weird, witchy hairdresser who does some kind of gruesome weave on her scalp. And so then she gets this glossy weave and suddenly everyone looks at her different. You know, it's like that trope of take take off the hot, ugly high school girl's glasses and then she walks in and everyone's like, whoa, who's this new sexy person? And that kind of happens to her (laughs) and she starts getting all these opportunities. Mm -hmm. But then the hair kind of has a life of its own, a very gory uh, life of its own. So that's the premise. And there's a lot of interesting ideas in there right off the bat. That's why I was actually eager to see the film. Mm -hmm. I think it's... um, a, a, a very cool way of talking about Eurocentric beauty standards um, and even other things that the film did bring up, like the economy of things like weaves, right? It's like hair coming from other persons, sometimes other countries imported mm. and being placed onto people living here. And and so there's so much potential there for like gothic and horror and you know social commentary but i think the film really does not make very good use of this potential um i thought that it just it just got so muddled um all these themes because there's also anna has this uncle who is a phd in and in like folklore or something like that and he gives her a book which has uh, like slave tales um slave folklore and one of the tales is about a slave, like a woman who made herself a wig out of the moss of a tree. And so there's all these intersecting um, kind of themes and stories that are just thrown in and they are never really tied together properly or realized fully. And what was most disappointing to me was that this idea of of hair that, you know, becomes animated and violent... There's so much interesting visual stuff you can do with that. There's so many interesting horror tropes you can play with that. But it just gets reduced to like a vampiric accessory. I mean, it just, the hair is just like, you know, it just wants blood all the time. Mm. And it seeks blood in sort of the visually the most unimaginative ways possible. In fact, some of those scenes were just kind of cringy B-movie-like scenes where the hair just goes and attacks people and just like, 
pierces their heart and starts sucking blood. It, mm. it was just so so dull for me. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I also you know I I. I I like the potential of the movie. I it just a lot of it was really slack and and just as a, as a, as a, as a horror movie, it's it it just was yeah sort of shapeless. It had a long run up, long runway. Um, I I did like some of the showdowns at the end. That those were those were a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it just I didn't understand the visual scheme that he he was he was um, using. Um, it just was felt really underlit a lot of times, uh, yeah. and I just some scenes, uh, I the dynamics just were. I don't know how else to say it. The direction I just had no idea what what was. I mean, totally, for. totally muddled. Yeah. just going in random directions and yeah. hair flying around and <laughs> and you know flopping around and then being cut and it just doesn't look appealing on screen, you know. And I was yeah. hoping that it would be made to look. A certain distinctive way, and it yeah. just doesn't. And again, and there's so much going on in the film. There's also the side of this TV channel that's being changed in a way, uh, and it's responding to you know industry pressures and cultural changes, and being made designed to be more appealing to a, a broader audience, which you know is code for you know, make it more appealing, more marketable to white people, yeah, that well, sort of thing. Yeah, well, they have that joke where someone says a wider, I mean, whiter <laughs> audience. Yeah. yeah. But even, I mean, even that joke, it just became so obvious. Um, and the thing is, I thought that in those, in the last few scenes of the movie, some of these themes are just kind of suddenly spelled out by the characters in very moralistic ways. And uh, it kind of reminded me of his, previous film which I really did enjoy when I first saw it uh, I mean I was in college when I saw it and it seemed like a really nice satire of uh, college politics and discussions of race that ha- were happening at campuses at the time but it, now I mean watching this film there is this line I draw between the two which is a lot of ideas are thrown out and a lot of sort of um, popular you know topics of conversation are just just spoken by characters, but they're not actually engaged within the plot or the making of the film in any real way. And that happens towards the end where these characters are just saying these really big things and then the film just kind of ends, just peters out. (laughs) And it's not kind of clear what the metaphors at play are. Yeah, I mean, I I just... A lot of it felt just not so digested... Um, I don't know. It's tough because it does throw out a lot of, um, you know, potentially interesting ideas. Um, Yeah, just the writing wasn't so sharp. There would be like some lines that would really grab the audience. I was actually surprised the audience that we we were with was not more into it because it's definitely a movie that you'd think would have its, you know, kind of have its hooks in you and people would be like, you'd have kind of people riding along with it. Um, I wasn't really feeling that. Yeah. So that was we. I guess we don't have to <laughs> go with labor with, the point. labor with 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 bad hair, but um, so it goes. Um, maybe we can cover a couple more titles. Um, I think one that might be interesting to hear about uh, because <laughs> it was somewhat interestingly programmed opposite bad hair as well, or vice versa. Miss Americana, yes, um, also known as. The Taylor Swift documentary. Yes. Um, which I saw. Um, 
which is also a Netflix film. Yes. So Netflix kind of owned the Eccles Theater yeah. uh, this evening, um, which is also where Crip Camp showed. Um, this is a film that, uh, you, you know, this is a, uh, Lana Wilson is the director, um, and those who sort of know Lana or, 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 you know, know the world of U.S. documentary film knew that Lana was working on something with some very talented people for a long time, um, and it was only really when this film was announced as the opening night film of Sundance that anybody had any idea that this was actually the film or that Lana had directed this film. Can I ask a question yeah. there? Because I'm always curious how people keep the wraps on something like that. Lana was a wizard about this, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So people just ask, and she'd say, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, NDAs, I, I mean, she, I mean, when she talked, yeah, and, and like serious NDAs, yeah, but yeah, she yeah. talked about yeah. this from the stage today about how like her family was here and her family did not know. Oh, like, wow. her family did not know what <laughs> film their daughter was making. That is always crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a talker that I just couldn't imagine. I mean, she, like, I mean, she relocated yeah. to the West Coast like a year uh, to be West Coast right. for a project that was not discussed. So yeah. it is a film like that and already, which is like, those are probably the reasons behind that secrecy is not for the sake of Sundance, but it is the sort of thing where like it kind of explodes, you know, you know, in the way that record releases these days, like you don't, it's not on a calendar and then it drops and it just kind of has this sort of seismic effect. And I think that, um, that is sort of what's happened in the last month or so with this film, Mm -hmm. um, which I guess is not a bad strategy. Um, or in the sense that it's going to be on Netflix soon. You know, I think in a couple of weeks, I think okay. even it's not going to have a festival life beyond this. What that means for a festival like Sundance to sort of have films that are not really festival films is a question that I go back and forth on. Um, but what it certainly amounted to was a, you know, a significant big buzz event this evening with, you know, um, like hundreds upon hundreds of people waitlisting trying to get in when they there was never a chance. Like I, I'm sure that nobody on a wait list right. got into this film, but there was, you know, I heard people like singing her songs as if they were like sitting around a fireside outside the theater wow. on the way in. Like there's a real Swifty, <laughs> some Swifties out there. Um, you know, and this, and this is a film that, uh, because of the Swifties will be seen, will be adored in some way. Um, and it has like, great footage of, of 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 Taylor Swift performing and you know and candid footage of her in the recording studio which apparently has never been seen before like her process of songwriting and collaborating with producers and that's there and it's really fascinating what's in there um i think the reason that a filmmaker like Lana Wilson is involved in this um and the reason where I would hope the thing that people would most want to write about and talk about with this is the politics um, and how this is kind of this film exists because this is a moment this this footage was captured during a moment when she was becoming a political person oh Um, you mean like actual politics exact actual politics this is a moment where she you know in the period of this film she had just been on trial or like went to trial for um, somebody who had, you know, um, acted inappropriately toward her and there were right. countersuits and she pursued that through even though I think the lawsuit was for a dollar. Right. Like it, it was, re- it existed just this. 
to make sure it went to trial so this these this this would get out there and she participated in this so that was like a commitment to kind of being part of a of, of a moment here mm. um and then also then she committed to endorsing um a democrat in the midterm elections mm. um in tennessee um and that was a completely um out of character like she was vehemently non-committal in terms of her politics you could right. have read between the lines but she did not want to alienate potentially half her fan base customers and that's not something you do in Sorry. country especially when you know the the secret or the not so secret thing in country is that is is a, a maybe a somewhat less percentage wise less liberal audience than some other genres um and so no matter what your politics are you have to be really careful about that this is a film that captures her in a moment where she's basically emerging from that and which is interesting because it's a this is a she's 29 basically when this film is made um or that's maybe when like some other artists come out of their shell sexually or they become mm. kind of maybe hyper sexualized figures where they're going to own their bodies they're going to own their images and that you know whether it's mariah carey or you know christina aguilera like that those things happen for her it's very much politics that's pretty interesting mm. um it you know it doesn't make like for universally amazing footage all the time and you know it, it plays it safe in some ways as, as it probably always will have would have to be but the, the the meat here is her having candid conversations with her team about whether or not she should do this what's at risk um and then there's there's a one you know not to ruin it for anybody but there's a sequence there where she's uh, driving around um in a car and she's actually it's, it's incredible because she's just comes into the car she walks past a bunch of her fans sits down lana and the camera are clearly in there and Gigi starts talking about um eating disorders and body image and just gets really in there and and that's the sort of thing where like that's it that whatever it is like that's um whoever whoever is going to come to this film and whoever they're going to get out of it those are the moments where i think the entire film exists for those moments and that's why if somebody is as talented as lana wilson is involved back which should have been the beginning directed after tiller which was here at sundance years ago and a film called the departure several years ago which i think is a really fantastic film that was neglected in many ways um so that's kind of like the math here why somebody like lana wilson's involved and does the film talk about um her recent sort of struggles with ownership of her records that is okay i was just curious uh, if if that affected the songs used in the film because you know she's been in this like battle with so, uh, scooter braun and and these people who signed her when she was young and who basically owned the rights to her masters and i i might be wrong but i think it was during that time when she was kind of there was this back and forth that she first mentioned that this documentary was being made uh, okay. to her fans um no, i was just curious none of that, if that none of that's in, in there okay. this is mostly featuring um the writing and recording of the most recent record hmm. um but then also the touring behind the record bef- previous to that okay miss americana miss americana um and that will show uh, again, um, but also, yes, we'll be coming to Netflix. Um, we're probably coming to the end of our time on this particular episode. Although, Devika, do you want to talk just 
quickly about one other film. We always like to give attention not just to the, the ones making the big splash, or, um, but this is a film that people might overlook. Sure, yeah. Um, there's a film that I got to see before the festival that I really loved called This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. We mentioned it in our preview, um, and we're going to have a piece about it because I had the chance to talk to the director. So yes. I'll just keep this brief and you can uh, read more details very yes. soon on filmcomment.com. Um, <laughs> well uh, but it's uh, he's a, a filmmaker from Lesotho, and that actually... That simple fact drew me to the film initially because I have not seen any films from Lesotho before this. And he's now based in Berlin and he's been making films for a few years. So his first feature was called um, Mother, I'm Suffocating. This is my last film about you. I just love saying that title. Uh, So I just have to say it. Um, And then and that was kind of an experimental film about his relationship with Africa and exile and this is a more narrative film, although I'm saying that loosely. And it's about a an 80-year-old woman in a s- small village in Lesotho who uh, discovers that their village is being flooded. There's a dam being built and it's being flooded to, you know, for some construction and they're all being moved to the city. Uh, and so they all have to vacate their homes. And this woman is just firm that she will be buried in this town where she's lived all her life. And I mean, she she cannot imagine the idea of being buried elsewhere. And actually part of their resettlement is digging up uh, graves and taking their dead with them. So it's this, hmm. I, I don't know, all a very um, almost fantastical premise, but it is based in reality and, and the very real movements of modernity in different parts of the world. And so that's the basic premise, but it, it, the film just kind of explores this in an incredibly elliptical way. Uh, it's written more like poetry than like a narrative film. So all the dialogue, even though there are scenes, there are narrative scenes, there are things that happen, the plot moves forward, the woman goes, tries to find different ways to make her case, tries to rally the villagers, even tries to bribe a man to dig a grave for her, Um which insinuates that she is planning something for herself, you know, trying mm. to move the clock along before they're resettled. And all sorts of these interesting things happen that are in conversation with, like I said, the realities of um, capitalism, the realities of progress, but are also very mythical because the film is evoking a lot of folklore and myth, some made up, some actually, you know, some Lesotho folklore. Um, and the most striking thing about the film is its visuals. It is like one of the most stunning films I've seen in recent times. Each image is just so unbelievably gorgeous. And it's not that kind of uh, visual beauty that is like, a, it seems like a technological achievement. You know, it's not like slick. And that's something mm-hmm. that kind of always takes me out because it removes me from the setting when it's like, it's clearly filters or, you know, just using a really high-end camera that's achieved the perfection of these images. But there's he, he just has this, either it's just the setting that maybe is just naturally so colorful, that, you know, it just seems like all these, it's saturated and these perfect horizons, these fields of flowers. Um, or he's just found a way to compose in a very organic way, like working closely with the landscape and just knowing the right angles, knowing the right duration for each shot. So 
uh, that's you know even though I didn't actually understand much of the film the first time I watched it because it's so kind of cryptic the images have just stayed with me I mean there are scenes that I can recall every detail of some of the scenes because they were just enchanting so that's my brief spiel about it and yes. more to come um, this is not a burial it is a resurrection is that how it goes yes um <laughs> That's a, a full sentence title. I always admire when someone can pull that off. Um, but uh, that brings us to the end of our um, first in our podcast, actually about films that we've actually seen. Um, we'll be doing many more of these, plus some filmmaker interviews, perhaps including D. Reese. Um, so look out for that. Um, and uh, we'll be busily watching movies so we can tell you all about them. But thank you both for sharing your brilliance thank you you've been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg Einge. you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by film at lincoln center since 1962 film comment has featured in-depth features critical analysis and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our best-of-the-decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.